Hello and welcome to another episode of Stefan Things. Thanks for listening, y'all. Um, I'm on episode eight now, which is wild. I'm inching my way towards ten episodes. Man, that's fucking cool. This episode's really special. It's my uh, my brother. <laughs> my younger brother, William, was in town with his wife. They were visiting. And we had an amazing time together. Hadn't seen him in like a year. It was awesome. We're very close. So he said yes to being on the podcast. We talk about a lot of stuff. We gossip about our Air Force days and just talk about what it means to grow and what friendship and brotherhood is. And I think we had a great conversation and I hope you enjoy it. So check it out. This is an episode eight of Stefan things. I said that weird. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> episode eight of Stefan things. I hope you enjoy it. Special episode. My brother is in town for a few days and we decided we'd uh, record an episode together. So hello. Hello. Hey, introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Will. Um, Steven's brother. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot I mean, more to you than that. I know, but it, you know, this is just a very interesting way to have a conversation. <laughs> it is. It is. It's weird because it, you eventually get used to it. Um, the first couple of episodes, I was like shaking nervous, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is funny because I even have, I, since I even have a back, even with a background in interviewing, I was still like, oh, like when I hung out with Muriel for the mm -hmm. first episode, I was just, I just wanted it to be good. That was the biggest yeah. thing. I mean, I've always had a, a fear of stage fright and uh, talking in front of people. So Yeah, it's the most common fear is public speaking. Yeah, I had a friend tell me one time, he said, more people are more comfortable dying than they are speaking in front <laughs> of other people. Yeah, so, I think that's probably true, though. Yeah, no, I think so, too. Um, but thankfully, I've put obstacles in my way to make it more comfortable. Yeah, well, it's a skill, I think, that like needs flexing, just like anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but some people are predisposed to be, you know, it's like more of a shitty experience, you know, than others. Yeah, it so. can be. I, I'm lucky. I, it wasn't so much a fear of doing the thing rather than the fear of mediocrity doing the thing. It's like, I'm always worried yeah. that me doing it is just shitty. It's not the act of doing it that I'm afraid of. It's not the performance of it or, you know, being in front of a crowd. It's fucking up <laughs> yeah for me yeah it's not doing it to the standards that i set out for myself yeah that might be a, something that we have it in our yeah. family <laughs> so oh you mean anxiety yeah um, yeah hereditary anxiety and imposter syndrome <laughs> you know what sucks is that i actually had the worst job in basic training for someone with that didn't like i was a chow runner oh no so you always had to go report yeah the first time i couldn't do it, i was just i fell apart well because they screamed you, at me you know as soon as i started failing of course yeah for those of you who don't know me and my brother were both in the uh, united states military or in the air force explain to them what a chow runner did in boot camp <laughs> so uh me being a dumbass they asked for volunteers and no one was raising their hand so i was like well they're gonna start picking people if someone does volunteer and it's gonna be not as good so I raised my hand, they picked two others, and we had to memorize this like three paragraph, no, it was more like two paragraphs, long reporting statement and like procedures for any time that the the flight or, you know, in basic training or flight is the group of people you're with. It's usually about 60 people. And as someone as a chow run, you have to basically go into the chow hall by yourself with another, uh, sorry, no, with one other chow runner and you have to report in front of all the senior leadership that are eating as well to basically let your flight eat. And if you mess up, your flight doesn't get to eat that meal. So 
or that's the threat that they give you, which it, you know never came to fruition. But yeah. yeah, dude, meals in boot camp were never fun. No, they're stressful as hell. I, I, in for me, my anxiety and eating don't go well together. Usually, if I have really bad anxiety, I don't eat. So mm-hmm. forcing myself to eat, I got sick a lot. Mm-hmm. I usually Especially. I didn't eat a lot. That's why I lost so much weight. Yep, I did too. I mean, it was also that Texas heat. But yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, on top of that, like our calories, you know, we were working out constantly, but you eventually get used to it. And that's, what's weird. I was like, I remembering in my like last second to last week, cause air force basic training, at least when we were in was eight and a half weeks. So it was like week six or seven. And at that point I, you, you, you've embraced the suck, mm-hmm. you know, you're like used to it. And it's kind of like, you know, you've learned your wiggle room, you know, as, as far as like you, when you can joke around, when you yeah. can get away with stuff, learning the rules to operate with them. Yep, exactly. And then we were there and these newbies came in and they were called rainbow flights because they hadn't they didn't have their uniforms yet sneaker weakers yeah they were just wearing like normal normal clothes mm-hmm. and so they were having their first meal that that first breakfast which I'll never forget that was like the most stressful day um and they two happened to sit down at my table cuz you know you sit down in, in pairs of and when you go through and it was me and one kid from my flight and then these two brand new just straight they had just woken up you know just been busted in the night before they were scared out of their mind and they're getting yelled at and i so once you get later on there's dessert that's available well as you get more confident you can as long as there's a procedure you have to do correct facing movements to grab the dessert because it's behind you and all this i didn't care i grabbed a piece of pie because i was like i'm almost out of here you mm-hmm. kind of get over that fear so i grabbed a piece of pie and i sat down and i was like i'm gonna mess with these new kids <laughs> And I looked at him straight in the eye because they didn't think you were allowed. They thought that the dessert, the dessert was just there to scare you or to like taunt you. And I looked at him and I took a bite and I'll go, mm. <laughs> and they started laughing and their TI, their drill sergeant came over and just fucking gave it to him, man. <laughs> and I was, I was laughing internally, laughing so hard. Oh my God. It was funny. But I mean, that's just kind of how it is. You have to have a little bit of fun and they probably did no. it to someone else. <laughs> there was a guy in my flight. His name was Gordon. He, uh, he was from Cuba and he went over there to the, to walk towards it. And they stopped him before he got to the carousel, you know, to grab whatever right, he right. wanted. And so he went back and they, they started drilling him on, uh, questions, you know, like, the, while like in basic, yeah, you're, you're supposed to be studying this manual the whole time. Cause you have to take a written test at the end to graduate. Well, they would often, you know, ask you questions. And if you got it right they would, you know, be like, okay, good, good stuff. Or if, if not, you would get chewed out. But, he ended up, they all, like eight of them, gave, asked him a question. He passed everything perfect, military bearing, everything. And then he started walking back to his chair. And then the the senior NCO at the table was like, are you not going to go get your dessert? And he turned around and he said, sir, I just wanted to see if I could do it. Oh, man. It was man. pretty cool. But then my MTI came in afterwards. He's like, y'all want that kind of intention? Sure. Let's see what happens. Oh, no. <laughs> and then yeah. we were under the microscope for the like rest of the week. Sure. <laughs> We were a band of misfits when I was in. Um, we got in trouble a lot. We didn't. We were like the bottom rung of the ladder at every competition that we did. You know, we lost at everything. Oh yeah. And it was, but we did. We kind of embraced it. We called ourselves the Stripes Flight. If you haven't, there's a Bill Murray film. With, oh, that's a great with movie. Harold Ramis called Stripes from the '80s, where it's just a bunch of ragtag people who go to the army. Anyway, we called ourselves the Stripes Flight because we were just a bunch of jokesters and stuff. And I'll never forget actually one day our entire flight so this is like 70 people decided to get ice cream because they had a little soft serve machine like fro- froyo mm-hmm. at the end of the 
chow line. It sucked too. <laughs> and it wasn't any good, but it was, you know, it was an ice cream machine and you hadn't had sweets in weeks. And um, <laughs> we all decided, we were like pre decided as we were hanging out with no drill sergeants around, we're like, we're all going to get ice cream this time. And we had this, we cracked this plan. We're like, the dorm chief's going to go first and everybody's just going to get ice cream. And we're all going to go to that machine. Like five people backed out. And I was like, I don't know why you're backing out because if we get in trouble, you're sharing that. So you might as well enjoy some mm-hmm. ice cream. Might as well. <laughs> so anyway, so we did it. And, and once they noticed that, okay, the first dorm chief, he goes, he kept going on the line and all the, um, they call it the snake pit is where all the drill sergeants eat lunch. He continued past the normal food and went to the machine was like, you know, like pulled the lever down and then the ice cream started going in. They're like, oh shit, this dorm chief is, is feeling froggy. And then the next ch- trainee goes, and then the next trainee goes, and then the next one, the next one, the next one. And I was further down the line, but they started pulling us all out of line because they noticed we were all getting ice cream um, and over to the snake pit to drill everybody. And that's what they started doing. They asked all these trivia questions because they were like, we've never seen this happen. We've never seen an entire flight band together. And no, like, not my flight wouldn't have done that. Yeah. We had so many people who were, Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was it was so funny though because then they called us the ice cream flight for the rest of basic <laughs> training and we were like a legend. We got like further along and like, we, we brought it up to some newbies because eventually you get to a point where you like bring in some newbies and, and like wake them up until they they have you go wake up newbies who just got there and kind of like tell them what to expect. And oh, all the that. EC duty. Yeah. 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 So we would do that because you'd be a door guard for them. So like during your shift work, you'd wake a couple up and be like, hey, do you have any questions? Anyway, they're like, you guys are the ice cream flight. So apparently it had already become like a legend even while I was there. It was just funny. But we were, yeah, it was weird. Military is weird. Military is weird because you get to like different stages of um, senior seniority, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it goes to your head immediately. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, I've been here for like three weeks, man. That's some shit. And, the, <laughs> and it just keeps going and going and going and going. Even when I was on my way out the door, you know, you'd have people like, well, I've got senior. I've been in five years. And it's like, well, this dude's been here for like 20, so like, yeah. who cares? <laughs> yeah, you. well, there's different operational military versus like boot camp and all of that. It's two different worlds for mm-hmm. sure. But if anything showed me that like positions of power corrupt immediately, um, it that did. Because you would get the smallest bit of responsibility, like you're a dorm chief or mm-hmm. you're uh, whatever those are called. The other a ones. rope. Yeah. And immediately these people become narcissists. Like yes. it's weird. And it made me really kind of hyper-focus on like, how authority and like power differentials rewire like brain chemistry or if you have like a disposition towards narcissism it like really draws that out of you mm-hmm. and um i don't know it was kind of it was a weird left a bad taste in my mouth and i and i just kept seeing it throughout my career as i as it went through you know and then you meet good leaders but those are usually the people who didn't necessarily choose it very often it's like it was thrust on them or mm-hmm. you know it was by virtue of themselves not because they wanted it but because it was like a natural thing, but, um, man, more often than not though, man, there were some stinkers <laughs> specifically at the senior level. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. what was your career like? How would you describe it? <laughs> um, cold and long, uh, God, it spent six years in Minot in North Dakota and it was flat, barren wasteland, not much to do in a town that's, you know, very, very small. Uh, the base was basically why the town was there and I worked on b-52s I was the an avionics guy specifically I was a communications navigations mission systems specialist that's a mouthful we were just called comnav though 
Um, and then, you know, there was other avionics shops. You had your guidance controls, you know, electronic countermeasures. But my job was to maintain, fix, and uh, ensure system operations for, like, anything to do with communication, navigation, and then the mission systems, which on this airframe was bombing. And uh, we were mainly a nuclear deterrence uh, mission, you know, in, in North Dakota, it's a big nuke base. Um, so we do generations, which are nuclear exercises where they load up real live warheads on aircraft and we simulate going to war. And it was pretty, I mean, those, those moments were exciting and cool. Um, but then they get old real quick cause you're on 14 hour shifts for weeks at a time and it's just drains on you. But, um, it was exciting at times, mainly getting berated and beat down <laughs> though yeah. by my peers. Well, uh, I, I know like most of modern military, especially when we're not in like a um, classic war time, it's like exercising readiness, which is basically mm -hmm. the, the, it's like, especially in the air force because it's a support branch. So essentially the air force supports the ground missions of the other branches and they're bombers, but they also provide air support and things like that. But then within the military, and most people don't recognize this actually a large majority, I would say probably 60 to 80% of, of at all branches is admin and, and maintaining the structure of the military, mm -hmm. whether you're a civil engineer building a, a, a office space on the base or you're um, working in the finance because it's a self-contained thing that's, you know, they, they do have civilian um, employees, but for the most part, it's an active duty based thing where everybody's wearing a uniform. So you think even your finance people who handle your paychecks, they're also wearing a uniform. They're also trained to the same, you know, basic mm -hmm. training. Most people don't realize that. In fact, you know, the, the question you get asked all the time when you, when, when, uh, somebody who's not affiliated with the military, when you say you're in the air force is, you know, what plane did you fly? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> are you a pilot? Are you a no, pilot? But I fix them. And a lot of pilots are very dumb people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've met a few stinker pilots. They're usually fighter pilots. They're usually just arrogant, which is fine. I get it. You have to be, you're flying a multi-million dollar piece of aircraft. I mean, yeah. that's insane. I feel you, like have you have to be a little crazy. You have to be a little narcissistic too, because you're going to want to protect your life enough to, mm -hmm. you know, do the job right. There's no wiggle room. So yeah, there's part of that's true. Um, and then, and in my case, I was a support role as far as providing information mm -hmm. to the military as a broadcast journalist. It was, it was a weird dual role. So I, I'm there to broadcast information specifically for military members, but also to communicate in, a, in like a secondary position to communicate to the outside world too. Mm -hmm. They say I'm telling, quote unquote, telling the Air Force story. I'm not I'm creating propaganda. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what that's what I did. And it's funny. I get in arguments with um some people like some sergeants I had and they're like, we didn't make propaganda. I was like, bro, we made propaganda. We like controlled the message. Like, I don't know how else you want me to say it just cause you liked what we said. Doesn't mean it's not propaganda. Yeah. You know, <laughs> anyway. I mean, everything, you know, even looking back in history, you know, the you know, uncle Sam, that was technically propaganda, but everyone thinks of it as like a, you know, a time of, of, of you know, informing the public of dire need you know, we need you. It's like, it's still propaganda. It may have had a good message, but yeah, it is still. Well, one man's propaganda is another man's like invigorating patriotic <laughs> messaging, you know, <laughs> like it makes him feel empowered. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't hate my time in the military, but, uh, I was very lucky comparatively to most. Um, I think it is, it, it is still what you make of it. You take advantage of yeah, the things. No, for sure. I, I mean, I've, I got to travel. That was kind of, you know, it was cool. I got to go to Guam twice, which that was fantastic. You know, we were doing 
deterrence missions against China and North Korea. But for the most part, I was hanging out on the beach, doing my thing. And as well as the, um, I went to Qatar for eight months. That was my only operational deployment where we were actually dropping live munitions. And uh, that was very, very different though. Um, it was more, more boring than anything at the end of the day because you kept doing the same stuff over and over. I mean, it was still important, but you know, it's just kind of stressful. How did you feel being like being a pawn of lawmakers and Congress people? And uh, I've come to terms with it. You know, I, I did see, you know, I, I was very informed on a lot of uh, briefings. My Another part of my job was handling a lot of the cryptographic capabilities. Uh, you know, you have something called Cipernet, which is a database, kind of like the Internet, but it's for it's classified. like a lockdown network. Yeah, it's yeah. like a hardline network. And part of my job was having a role in that. And so I'd get to debrief the pilots and the, the people I mainly interacted with were the uh, the navigators who were the essentially the people who armed and operated the weapon systems and plotted and charted all that operated the sniper pod which was the big part of my job which was the targeting pod it's a super advanced targeting laser it has on the like right. a blue thing on the end or yeah it's a sapphire coated um, reflective lens yeah um, so it's super super tough strong and um, it allows infrared to pass through it very clearly the only reason i'm acutely aware of what that looks like is because i was not allowed to document it which is ironic actually because as a as a military documentarian um i had the need to know to be able to get that to collect that footage but we technically couldn't because it was um considered um it wasn't considered classified but it was considered um like special information mm -hmm. the irony is is the blueprints you can google <laughs> yeah no yeah you can go online and find all sorts of stuff it's just eliminating access at that point yeah because if you don't know what to look for you're never going to find yep, it exactly it's it's like the whole you don't you don't know what you don't know kind of thing it's like mm -hmm. yeah you can google it but not everybody's going to know to google it let's just limit limit the amount of information that's out there i guess you know it's like a security thing but my my point being is that you know i i debriefed i saw a lot of the footage of things like our strikes and missions completed and not that I'm, I'm not saying here to say no i've experienced war by any means i mean there there's very special individuals out there who are equipped and capable of doing those things and i'm not one of them and i'll admit that but i will say that you know it did bother me for a while you know but then i started seeing the reports of you know what isis was doing in certain towns and cities and you know, got to see that footage too. And by the time we left, that stopped. So, you know, I take some solace in that. But I do understand the complexity of the issue and the fact that we basically created the situation to begin with. So, yeah, I mean, but, we're an um, imperialistic nation, first and foremost. So, but again, I am I'm more of like a love the soldier, hate the war kind of person. In fact, mm -hmm. if you're going to hold anyone accountable, hold Congress accountable, you know, Congress and the uh, the president and well all three branches of government honestly um, especially when it comes to our warmongering as a nation um, for us you know you and I were lucky we didn't have to experience you know any kind of crazy and insane mm -hmm. physical pain or torment um, but a lot of people unfortunately do and that's because at the behest of those decisions that are made by people who will never see a situation like that which sucks and unfortunately the the tactics around recruiting i feel like are so unethical i mean i 
you and I didn't have a crazy bad experience with recruitment. Mm-hmm. Um, we were both just kind of like, I don't know what to do. So that's why we joined. No, oddly enough, my recruiter, he was a straight shooter, man. He told me that he's like, if you pick an avionics job, if you want it, those skills afterwards, you can make good money. And he was right. He was right if it was 10 years ago and all the master sergeants and above that retired when I first got there ate up the market. So oh, that sucks. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I tried searching after I got out, but I couldn't find anything. That sucks. Yeah. Um, but you got a good situation going yeah, for you now. Yeah. So that's, that's all that matters. It's, um, I don't know. It's weird thinking back. Cause you and I are coming up on like, a, it's been a while now since we've been in and, and we're like almost two years. Yeah. And I've, I've been me. out longer than I was in now, mm. which is really interesting because even though it was only four years of my life, the military was is always going to be this accolade, especially Mm -hmm. in the U S because of its culture and patriotism and like interest in that and like honoring its military. I'll always have that like thing. It's like an ACE in your pocket on this. No, it's been very helpful in in certain situations, specifically when trying to find a job because people, it can work against you too, though, specifically in personal relationships. I mean, I've had people who outright, you know, don't know anything about me. That's all they know. And they've already judged me based on that, which I can't blame them because even when I was serving, you know, I was the outlier. I was the person that was not who they were. And I'm not saying that to be special. It sucked. I mean, I got torn down constantly for six years, man. Well, I'd say the first three and then I, you know, I started making rank and then people started realizing, Oh, Hey, this guy's actually really good at his job and he's really good at leading his troops. Why not give him, you know, some, some room. And by the time I left, I was one of the most respected shift leads because i was the only person who would actually try to work (laughs) isn't it isn't it kind of shitty how like being like an ethical person being someone interested in like non-conformity it's such an uphill battle to like earn respect from people i i can i had vivid arguments i I still remember this day from people uh you know talking about north korean and like i would work with individuals who would say things like you know why can't we just nuke them from existence let's just turn them all to ash and i'm like you do realize that these are these are victims right there's like a handful of individuals that are controlling the lives of all these people who don't know any better and i got you know people never let me forget that argument really yeah and so you know i you know i'm fine with it i'm perfectly happy with my my choices but i was appalled to say the least that i was the absolute minority in my work environment i i had a a better experience it wasn't perfect but because i worked in a more creative field probably the only creative field within the military yeah, to be honest um it was very niche um broadcast journalism only really employs about 700 um active duty people at any given moment so that's a very small number so it's like we mostly know each other even if we're living all over the world which is kind of interesting but because of that the units were more creative people so they're more in by virtue of creativity made us more open-minded mm-hmm. but sure. but we were always thrown in situations where somebody from outside the career field is thrown in a, in a leadership position over us and it was always so difficult to try to communicate with them hey because all they're seeing is like the black and white of it mm-hmm. like this is what your mission says just do this just do six o'clock news like you always did and then for while i was in italy actually back in 2014 um, we were really trying to change how, how we operated because there was such a, everybody was on social media. No one was watching our six o'clock news broadcast. Mm-hmm. So we tried to change. It was so difficult to have an older enlisted person who had not gone to the same training as us 
like see what we were trying to say because he didn't care either way. Mm-hmm. He kind of rolled his eyes at what we did anyway. He's like, "You guys are so stupid. We don't care." He was just there to get that next drink. And I was like, "Yeah, exactly." And 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 so to convince them, we had to be. We basically for nine months had to do two jobs to convince them that we had to do the classic, not you know, news broadcast bullshit that no one listened to on the radio or watched on TV, and then when our free time shoot and edit and produce and write all these social media projects that were either funny or informative mm-hmm. or narrative cinematic whatever we, we created all kinds of stuff it took nine months to it because we had to have hardcore results that proved that the new stuff we were doing was getting more from the community than the old stuff mm-hmm. and anyway it should never take nine months to do anything like that no. but <laughs> it, it, that's what it took to convince this like kind of curmudgeon we had more than one curmudgeon um, one of them turned out to be a Nazi memorabilia collecting oh, I've white got a, supremacist. I got a story about that. Go for it. Yeah, yeah. Hey, y'all are learning so a little bit about the military. I uh, was about, I was what's called a three level. It's so you have, when you first get to your duty station, you acquire what's called a three level, which is your, you're in training. You're learning for about a year or, or until you complete your CDCs, which are a written tests, which I didn't have to do because I got lucky and they were rewriting them anyways. Um, so I went into what are called the crew chief shack, which is the uh, crew chiefs. They're another job. They basically service oil, tires, refuel the jets, things like that. They're like what you think of when you see uh, someone working on a plane. They're typically a crew chief. Uh, anyways, they were the ones who maintained the aircraft documentation and forms. So I had to go in there and ask around. And it's always an ordeal going into the crew chief shack because they were always just a. They're the ones who always were the most uh what's the they're word they're ball busters yeah 100 percent. yeah there you go that's a good way of putting it and they're all assholes so <laughs> um not all of them i got to know quite a few of them up on the way out but i go in there i'm brand new i'm asking for certain aircrafts documentation and the the lead nco in the room turns around and it had gotten around so it, it was a large squadron the, that i was in there's about 300 people but the people, the functional people on the actual, on the flight line I work with, small community, you get to know almost everyone. Um, well, it got around pretty quickly that I was Jewish. And this guy proceeds to do a Nazi salute and do the, like, you know, he said something. I forget specifically. She just thought he was being funny, but it was his, like. No, his, it was intentional. Um, either way, your racism. Yeah, no, yeah, right? 100% wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, irregardless. But um, anyways, and I was just, like, fuming. And I go back inside out to my truck. And, uh, and you know, I, I, they didn't have anything that I needed. And then the, uh, my lead, my shift lead at the time was like, what's wrong? What's bothering you? What's, what's going on? And he said, you look like you're about to like throw a toolbox. And I was like, well, and I explained what happened. And he was like, they said, what? Which is funny. Cause the guy who went in and defended me ended up being a racist. Oh no. <laughs> just not just selectively racist. No, it's because I was his troop. Oh, it had nothing okay. to do with the principle of it. It's just the fact that they, but it was cool that, you know, he defended me, but he goes in there and, you know, screamed at him and whatnot. And then it happened again a couple of weeks later by another crew chief. They thought it was hilarious to, they, I, he said something um, about being a kike, Yeah, was, which was awesome to hear. Yep. And uh, <laughs> I was super frustrated. Yeah. I, uh, isn't that crazy? Like that you're in, like, it's the, it was what, 2015 or yeah, so? 15, okay. Yeah. 14. So in like 2014, 2015. An active military, active duty military, you got white supremacists. You know. Oh, and someone on base carved the swastika in the back of my car with a nice. key. Yeah. 
Wow. I experienced a little bit in basic training when my drill sergeant found out I was Jewish because I wanted to go to the synagogue on, you know, the weekends mm-hmm. as opposed to the church services. And, uh, yeah, he didn't treat me well after that either. <laughs> I'll t- I've told it's funny. Tr- it's not even like I was vocal or anything. I think I just mentioned it because in my shop, one of the, what ended up being one of my closest friends, Orvieto, he was Jewish and he was my supervisor for the majority of my time there. And me and him are still friends to this day. Um, and he's like a true New York Jew though. And, you know, he's all, you know, he's a great guy, but, um, yeah, he, uh, me and him, you know, we stuck it out. We had to deal with a lot of stuff like that's that. That's so frustrating. But yeah, you kind of have to, you, you're, you're contractually obliged to deal with it. I mean, there are certain avenues you could take. There's a thing called Inspector General, which you could call. They're kind of like a third party. They have like an authority over your base leadership. So they can, and they, you have them. And then you also have, um, there's like legal, um, people you can talk to it's usually an officer and an enlisted person Mm -hmm. and they're on base too and they're also a third party so if like anything happens and like the base is at fault because they're all military is going to protect itself always yes and you're seeing this in like all in these army bases across the u.s right now unfortunately with all this you know sexual assault none of this stuff is new to me or will because this was happening when we were in this was happening when we were in basic training you and i are both vocal about it it's just like it doesn't get the attention it deserves, unfortunately. And I think a lot of people have this assumption that, oh, the, the, per- the person's wearing the uniform. That means you can assume a certain level of honor from them as far mm-hmm. as it being a human being. And I argue that the military just makes it more difficult to spot people because you all look the same. And the ratio of shit person versus good person is the same as it is anywhere else. As well as the ratio of men to women. Yeah. And women are way more... well. It's actually pretty close to equal, but more, more women are likely to, you know, say something. But the problem is, is when they say something, the odds are against them and who the... Reprisal is huge in the military. Mm-hmm. It's horrible. I mean, I don't want to like shit on my entire experience because I did meet amazing people that I'm still close with to this mm-hmm. day. People who I know are true humanitarians. You know, yes, at the end of the day, you are supporting a military that does cause loss of life throughout the world, but they're not fighting for that. They're trying to be on the support side, the people who deliver good, you know, goods to people across the world. And I think that's kind of like, like a peace corps kind of thing. That's my hope for humanity, you know, yeah, in the future. Sure. Unfortunately, we're not there. Right. And, and we only have so much agency on the ground level as like a normal person. Um, but yeah, I mean the, the, the bad is there and it's there. There's a reason you and I didn't stay in. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that that's just the truth of the matter. Yeah, for sure. You know, and I, I was happy to, to accomplish some things. I set out certain goals for myself going in. Um, you know, I made rank pretty much first time every time, um, you know, got out as a staff sergeant, enjoyed being a, a leader, you know, for not in the sense of, uh, you know, inspiring and whatever, but because the role of leadership is so different depending on where you're at, you know, for the most part. For me, um, in my career field, it was about running a shift, you know, and w- what all entails with that. And I, I will say it was rewarding it, it, having, you know, figuring ways out to have everything kind of line up perfectly throughout the day. It was rewarding, but the problem was, is it, it never ended and it never was enough. It was never enough. So, um, and, and then the lack of career mobility, you know, they, they froze my, my, my job code to where I couldn't retrain. So I was stuck between there. So I decided to move on to better things. More importantly for my mental health. 
Actually, yeah, that's when I, I wanted to kind of segue into like kind of the whole finding yourself post-military mm-hmm. because you l- really do, no matter how hard you try, you lose a sense of identity, at least even on the basic level because there's dress and appearance, you know, mm-hmm. regulation. So, you know, you can't even really express yourself in ways that you would like unless it happens to line up with, you know, the military haircut and all of that. But um, I'll talk about my process, but I want to hear from you first. Like, what, what was it like and how long do you think it took for you to kind of like realize who you are as a person post-military? I mean, to be honest, I'm still going, still trying to figure that out. I mean, the first year was pretty incredible to, you know, change for myself. Um, you know, before going into the Air Force, I was like... I mean, you can attest this. I was a pretty confident, outgoing person. Uh, I lost every ounce of that when I was in. When I mean the first couple years and, you know, tech school and basic training, those were fine. It was when I actually got to my first operational base because it was every day I was getting belittled, screamed at, you know, mocked, humiliated daily by my peers, by my leadership. Uh, I had a few friends who were on the same level as me who were also victims of it and we all made a concerned effort to change things when we started making rank and things. Um, well, it sucked is the first people that were doing it also made rank and they stayed around and they just perpetuated it. So, um, there was a, basically my generation, as we called ourselves, uh, when we came in, we were all suffered from that. And we, what was cool is we did create a community of us and friends, but for me, it wasn't enough. You know, I, I lost a lot of self-respect and, because I felt like I wasn't standing up for myself, but because every time I did, it would turn into a pissing match between rank. You know, it had nothing to do with me being able to defend just my position. Then it was, you know, it was, I was threatening them from a official standpoint. So I was like, okay, so you can be unprofessional and, and berate me. But the moment I try to professionally bring it up to you, I'm being disrespectful and unprofessional. And that, that stuck with me a long time. And I made a lot of bad decisions, you know, throughout that time uh, as well, especially on deployments, drank too much, did too much stuff I shouldn't have. And I had, I've just now finally over the past year been able to forgive myself for a lot of things. Um, But yeah, no, uh, marijuana helped a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Not going to lie. I learned how to be empathetic and compassionate again. Uh, that was the first thing that went was my emotions. I felt completely detached emotionally, specifically my marriage. And that was rough and unfair uh, because, you know, Katie, she was going through her own stuff, being alone in North Dakota, away from home by herself. No other. Like, it was terrifying for her, too. So but I've slowly crawled back, been able to, you know, get help for some stuff and hopefully I feel I'm on that cusp. I'm, I'm almost there 100%. And I'm, I'm so excited this next year. I mean, 2020, I think for everyone has been a delay on their plans, even in personal growth. But um, last year really helped a lot. Um, and then, you know, I've done other stuff that helped broaden my, my scope of things as well. I'm really proud of you, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. It's been rough. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I like that you use the word crawl because that's the best way to describe it. And it's funny, my career is not the reason that I faced a lot of the same challenges as you. Unfortunately, it was my personal relationship, mm-hmm. um, specifically my marriage. And I've talked about this before on the podcast, but I'll go into a little more detail. So, you know, I was overseas 
And I made the decision to get married too soon. I mean, obviously, I'm going to own that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I own that to this day. I give myself a little bit of grace because I was in love. And I and I believed in it from the day one. I mean, until I, the day it ended, I was um, too devoted. <laughs> mm-hmm. I lost myself. But I was overseas um, and doing long-distance relationship with my then-wife. Um, and I was... I was experiencing that beratement, that treatment, that disrespect from somebody who I couldn't even see and who I only wanted to see. The reason I was waking up every day and going to work was treating me in the same way that you were explaining being treated by your superiors. Um, it was so bad, actually, that my one of my close friends and supervisors, um, he knew it. And we would go on these walks around our building outside, and, and, and it was just like therapy. And... Um, I mean, it was so bad to the point where I had to fly home on emergency leave just to handle infidelity, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. classic, you know, persons overseas, uh, spouses back home, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, it's, it's not like in Jarhead, you know, it's, it's not like, oh no, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, there's no, um, it's not as cinematic as you might think. It's actually pretty just defeating and dark and quiet and it's, it's, it's gross. But so anyway, all that being said, I was still in that relationship even two years post military. And, um, when I got back home, so my, what I, my, all this to make the point that it took me even longer to start finding myself post military because, Mm -hmm. um, I've always been a late bloomer, but this was not my fault for the first two years outside the military. I was in a very toxic relationship. So I had no, avenue for personal growth and um just self-discovery at all as like an adult man and so the last year and some change has really been when that's happened for me too which happens to line up when you got out Mm -hmm. which is really interesting because you and i both have kind of like come back together as like brothers like we're always been close and always we're in contact but we hadn't really had an avenue to really regularly talk whatever yeah i mean life gets i mean I know it's a, a not a great excuse, but it's a reality that you know life kind of sweeps you away like a current in the ocean. Like it, it yeah. can just carry you away, and you like without you like, realizing it. Yeah, and I mean, I'm still a victim of it. I mean, I'm I'll admit it. I'm really bad about maintaining certain friendships, and it's not because I don't care about them. It's that I don't feel I'm equipped to give them that much time because I need all that time to better myself. <laughs> And it's difficult and I know it's, I need to work on it. Well, it's a balancing act, but I think that's why it's so important to communicate, um, like boundaries and at least manage people's expectations of you. Cause a lot of us do get caught up in that whole, like, I don't have the emotional energy to engage with people or they use the excuse. I'm a bad texter, which it literally translates to, I don't have the emotional energy to engage with people. Mm -hmm. Um, if they had just, if, if we not just, I'm not going to project if we, cause I'm I'm a victim of this too. If we, as people, make more of an effort to communicate why we're not communicating and it doesn't take a lot exactly um people are more accepting of your that distance or and then they're they cherish those moments that they do get because they know that you're really trying yeah and and they don't think that you're ghosting them or just ignoring them or don't care about them because we're all everybody's going through their own lives we tend to like place ourselves at the center of the universe. So we take it so personally when other people don't talk to us as much as we want them to, but one, you can't control what others do. And two, um, it's usually more complicated than that. Um, I would say it always is 100% of the time. I I doubt anyone sits in the room and says like, fuck you. I don't care about you. I'm not going to respond to your text. That's not the thought process. Mm -hmm. It might be selfish, their reasoning, 
but that's not how they think about it. No, and I, to be honest, as as someone on the receiving end of certain individuals, you know, friends that, you know, that balls in their court kind of thing, you know, and I here I do it to some people as well, but at the same time, it seems that as, as friends, you should understand and not hold expectations over other friends because, or even just anyone in general, because you don't you don't know what's specifically going on in their minds. You know, you don't know what they're dealing with on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Um, So I kind of try to maintain that mindset of, you know, I'm not going to take it personal. Uh, And if I choose to not take it personal, I might even learn something about myself. You know, maybe I should learn to engage more to be, because maybe they do need something that I I don't know about. Right, right. And that's why, you know, the best thing you do is ask, you Mm -hmm. know. And it's so hard to ask because you don't know if they're going to respond in that way. And And if they don't, though, you've done the thing. You know what I mean? Like you've done everything you can. That's so true. But it's weird seeing you and I come to this kind of similar point. You and I are kind of like, you know, like coming together more parallel um, as far as like, personal growth is concerned like mm-hmm. we're just being like more certain of ourselves or finding out the person we want to be and walking in that direction now um i don't know what how what how do you see it man i i think it's interesting that we've because we were always super close growing up and then obviously for natural reasons we separated to start different chapters of our lives but i do it is interesting that we've kind of come back together at the time I think we both need each other the most and I I think that's awesome and I'm so happy you know that I have a brother that I can look to to and count on well me too it means a lot Mm -hmm. brotherhood (laughs) now that one is a difficult one for me yeah well it's it I I I'm drawn to brother stories of brotherhood. Mm -hmm. My favorite, one of my favorite films is the Darjeeling limited and it's a a Wes Anderson film and it's Owen Wilson, um, Jason Schwartzman and Adrian Brody are brothers. Okay. So all the, the Wes Anderson crew. (laughs) Yep. Yep. The film follows them. It's a year since their dad died and it's them taking this spiritual trip. Owen Wilson's the oldest brother and he convinces them to go on this spiritual journey on this train called the Darjeeling limited across India to go see all these um, religious sites. Oh, I think I have, I haven't seen it, but yeah, it's really good. It's the film's about family, but it's more, more importantly, it's about like brotherhood and like what that means, how dysfunctional it is. And, um, they're a mess. Like they're all like addicted to different drugs and like, you know, (laughs) constantly taking like a drop of this and like a pill and, and, um, of course, it's a Wes Anderson film, so highly stylized. Um, anyway, I'm drawn to stories about brotherhood because I think it's like a really interesting thing. I grew up with two brothers and um, the dynamics there, how that works, uh, ego, ma- toxic masculinity. <laughs> um, and for those of you who listen to the episode with my mom, you kind of know she, you know, her, she was the only woman in the house. Our access to femininity was very limited because of that. Thankfully we had such a strong willed mother. <laughs> yeah, we had, yeah, exactly. And we've learned to appreciate those things later in life. But, um, dude, I, I wouldn't even like, how, how would you define brotherhood? Brotherhood for me, it's more than just a friendship. Um, it's a friendship that goes beyond the, uh, the limits of time because that you're always with each other, specifically growing up. There, there are moments, you know, and I, I don't always agree with the whole, you know, blood's thicker than water. And I know that analogy is always wrong. You know, it's, it could be misquoted, yeah. yeah, misquoted, but I'm not saying that 
chosen friendships are any less than blood friendships. The difference being with our relationship, I can speak on our, I guess, our experience, right. is that not only were, are we born, we were born together, we were, we chose to stay friends. We yeah. chose to have that relationship. So brotherhood can be extended even, I think it's those who you cho- choose most closest to you that you also share uh, some sort of commonality of birth with. And I know it's very literal and not very poetic, but for me, I, I, there's no doubt in my mind that you're going to, if we'll I need you, friends, yeah. yeah, we're going to, we're going to be together. We're going to, we're going to have that connection. Yep. I agree. Thankfully we're only two years apart. So all of our formative years were very similar, you know, like we both went through puberty, you know, roughly around the same mm-hmm. time. And, you know, we experienced a lot of like societal and social eras, you know, at the same time. So that was nice. But we also have some trauma bonding, mm-hmm. <laughs> which sure. I think does solidify, you know, relationships. I do think you and I have always been real with each other, which is very fucking important mm-hmm. and rare. Um, it's it's dope. We have amazing parents. Yes. Um, who always pushed us to be close. I think that they're that you know, we they value strong connection, just like you and I do. Um, but yeah, I think. Well, here's my take on it. I think that. There's a certain point where brotherhood, especially if you grow up together and live in the same household, um, where it's kind of not, it's chosen for you, right? Like that, you could, it's like either make good of it or not, right? Mm-hmm. And we chose to make good of it most of the time. You know, like we were, we were pals, you know, we hung out, we all had the same friends. And, um, and then when you get to the point where you become individual units in the world, then it's a ch- then it's brothers by choice, mm-hmm. I think. And it's no different than me than, th- than chosen family at that point. And for me, chosen family is people who've earned that position. Yeah. And I think you and I have earned that position. Oh, wholeheartedly. Yeah. You know, and I, w- I won't lie. It, it's it's been it, it's always been difficult for me to uh, form strong relationships with other men. For, me too for other reasons in my life um so i will say that being intimate with a, uh, specifically with a blood relative who's supposed to be someone that cares about you it's right. hard to open up for me personally um so i that just shows you how much more i value that relationship right well I mean, that's kind of how I've had to learn to treat every relationship. Unfortunately, friend, you know, relative or lover, it, it's, it has to be earned. There's, you cannot give yourself to somebody. I'm going to say this again. You cannot give yourself to somebody unless they earn it because mm-hmm. you are destroying yourself if they are not. What, it's like you're removing chunks of your body. You know, or your your inner self, your soul, whatever, and just freely handing it to somebody. If, if it's not earned, then you're not getting what you need in return to still sustain yourself as mm-hmm. a human being. Um, and that's physical, emotional, mental. It's, it's, oh, I'm such an advocate for main, uh, making sure people earn their slot in your life. <laughs> Cause you only have so many slots mm-hmm. and everybody's got a different number of slots. Some people can handle more slots. Some people can handle less slots, but you know what it takes to earn those slots. And you should never settle for anything less ever. And that's what I learned mm-hmm. after being abused for years. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, it's very true how friendships uh, 
I think they're undervalued these days for sure. Uh, specific, like close shared ones. And they're so difficult to find. Um, for me, I, be, the older I get, the harder and harder it seems to be able to find those connections, which makes the ones that you do have that much more valuable. And then the ones that, you know, and I'm not someone who needs a ton of friends or right. a ton of connections with people. I, I just want genuine. I want yeah. real. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's all anyone can ask for. I think. I agree. I agree. I think that that's fucking true as shit. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, so I'm going to switch gears into something more fun before we, we say goodbye. Of course. Um, but you and I love Legos. <laughs> oh my God. Yes, we do. I want to talk about Legos. Everybody listen up. This is Lego time. <laughs> the best toy in the world. <laughs> Is the one that you can make as many toys or whatever you want. Is the one you can, yes. I would, I, the way I see Legos is an ability to like, okay, so when you're a kid, you play with toys, you're almost always role playing in some way. And you're role playing. I am the fire truck, you know, when you're a toddler. I am the action figure when you're a little bit older, you know, like you're kind of like projecting yourself into the thing. It's some form of role play. I, I think it's early stage D&D. That's the way I look at it. Because mm -hmm. you're telling stories, you know, even it's rudimentary, this guy kills this monster, it's still a story. Um, Which is funny because I'm obsessed with the D and D as well. Well, yeah, but I mean, I, I, I I'm interested in D and D. I just haven't played it as much. Um, but I, I think D and D is actually a safe way for adults to play. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's like now it's becoming more and more culturally like, it's not frowned upon. You're not seen as like a basement dweller. Blah blah blah. But Legos for us specifically was like that turned up to eleven. Especially as I meet more people, everybody loves Legos. Mm -hmm. But not everybody played with Legos the same way you and I no. did growing up. And, and we had two good friends. Yeah, and we learned that because we did have several friends who were never in the same avenue. Yeah. You know, they would build something. You know, it's fine. It's different ways of enjoying something. But, but it was just, it was a little different. We would unique. spend hours creating essentially our character like you would in Dungeons and Dragons. Mm -hmm designing the minifigure because you could pop off their legs, arms, hands, you know, yeah. and, and like customize it building their ship usually because we were sci-fi nerds and like love star wars so we'd build a spaceship but then we'd build cities and we'd make all these other characters and like so what we would do we called these lego adventures i remember the specific one uh was it mars, mars wars. wars yes mars wars yep one. i was just getting there we had <laughs> can't believe i remember that y'all okay we played we we created these long story to story arcs the first one was called mars wars and we were different characters. You know, I was some like mm -hmm. pilot and you were some other guy who had a lightsaber. I can't remember. It didn't matter. <laughs> you know, we had a cape. My guy had a cape maybe. I don't remember. But they all had some tragic story. One guy had like a lost father, whatever. And, you know, we were pulling from things that we liked in popular media. And like we took the Yoda minifigure and made him like the, the shaman that we had to go see. And I mean, he was essentially just Yoda. Um, I'm pretty sure he But it had this too. grand. Yeah. I mean, there's this climax battle scene for some evil overlord who took over this giant city we built and it was so good we made we made a sequel <laughs> yes it was we we played a we played a sequel mars wars 2 <laughs> but this was this was us playing with legos like we would spend hours building the set pieces. yeah the set was the what took the longest because we had to build essentially a full-blown terrain that would take up the entire living room floor. yeah yeah it was like we take those flat platform pieces, like build buildings on it and place them strategically around the house because, you know, our characters had to travel. Mm -hmm. um, it was important for us to create distance between all the set pieces. We were essentially making a little movie, only it was just existed within our own brains. Yeah. Imagination, so man. It's powerful. I 
those are some of my most fond memories growing up, especially mm-hmm. with you. We, well, man, that's like literally we spent hours and it was cool. You throw a movie on while you're doing it too. So yeah. it's just like such an interactive Well, because you had the build phase, you know, where you're trying to work out what all this, you know, what all you want and how you want to represent yourself Pre-production. as a character. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you would move on to, um, uh, you know, the actual session, I guess, in a way you would production. Yeah. It's like a movie. And then post-production was tear down, you know, and like put all the things together. Mm-hmm. It was fun. I, I'm obsessed with storytelling. I talk about it all the time, but I think that there are a few key elements that really is what nailed storytelling as a career choice for me. One is Legos. Two is old JRPGs. So I, so like super Nintendo era, Japanese RPGs and like, in 64 like Zelda and stuff like that those games and their ability to tell stories that's narrative nature mm-hmm. made me obsessed with it and I was like so interested in like these cool tales of glory and interesting characters and I was like drawn to certain archetypes and stuff and it made me more and more interested so then when I learned about filmmaking and storytelling as like a as like a career um, in its various forms and we were always the family, the special features family too. So we watched yes. special features of movies yeah, all the time. Yeah, so we had an understanding of the process. So, and it, yeah. we had a father who was obsessed with analyzing and teaching. Yeah. So we would, you know, whether we wanted to or not, you know, we would receive a lesson. <laughs> I mean, we would sit and watch hours personally, of special features. Yeah, personally, I found it. I loved it. I loved learning. I still do. I, I thought that was more just as fun as watching the movie. Oh, yeah. I know. I I. The advent of special features changed everything for me. Um, I think it changed everything for the world too, because there was no more smoke and mirrors. The curtain was pulled back on a lot of um, how movies are made, how mm-hmm. TV's made. Um, there were documentaries before that, but there wasn't behind the scenes as we see it today. Bef- like so, basically DVDs is what started this, because um, you could store that onto mm-hmm. a DVD. But yeah, that's so true. You like unpack and understand how it works and. It's reverse engineering, basically. As as a kid, just watching special features all the time makes because we made little movies all the time too. Yes. Uh, I, go ahead. I, yeah, no, they weren't. <laughs> I th- the only one I, I kind of liked just because of its simplicity was the short silent movie I had to make. Yeah, yeah. About yeah. the the Mario game, and he's like this character struggling to get it to to work, and when he gets it to work, finally he dies on the first you know level. I, and for me, that was just simple and hilarious. And it was. I'm actually proud of that. <laughs> those are those are called um, punchline films, and they're and it, all you have to do is pull off the punchline, and it's great. And like nobody hates it. Like mm-hmm. it was perfect. It was I had we had to act in each other's films when we were kids, of course. And I'll never forget that we made it because our cousin was visiting too, yes. Kelsey. Kelsey, and we were yeah. It's like literally finding all the pieces to the Nintendo, getting it to work. It doesn't work the first time. Had to blow in the cartridge, getting it's like just a little sequence of that, and then we finally get it in, and then with like, some I'm like, like, yes, I played, and then I die in the first Goomba, <laughs> and it's just funny, like it's that'll always be funny. That's like classic silent film jokes. I mm-hmm. mean, it was it was really honestly ahead of its time. I will tell you, it was because I went to fucking film school, and some of the garbage that you know, some of my class like not even understanding the basics of like how to properly frame something. We kind of got that early on. Yeah. No. Yeah. And, and I mean, not gonna lie. I mean, you were extremely helpful because I, I had a, a you know, I had an idea of what I wanted to do and, and a loose structure, but you're the one who basically helped implement and, you know, cause you helped me a lot by showing, cause I didn't know really how well to operate the camera well, and all that. You were di- director. I was cinematographer. That's the relationship between director and cinematographer on any movie set. 
Oh, okay. The director's there to communicate. Now, most cases, directors are pretty educated on camera technology mm -hmm. and lenses and all that. Um, but they're saying, this is what I want it to look like. And it's the cinematographer's um, job to be, understand what they're saying and make it happen. They said a film director is just someone who's really good at explaining things. That's literally all a film director is. Whether they're working with talent or they're working with their crew, they are the one who say, we all have this collective vision and I can very detail oriented, explain to you exactly in, in terms that you understand in a vernacular that's specific to your job. That's all a director does. Now, the really good ones are inspiring. You know, they'll still mm -hmm. sit with you and you're like, oh my God, as an actor, you know, like they're such a genius. Um, but that's just their own charisma. That's not the actual job titles requirement of them, you know? Yeah. And then the cinematographer is the person who says, oh, I know exactly what you're going for. Here's how we're going to make it happen. This is where the camera needs to be. This is how it needs to be angled. This is how far, you know, this is the kind of lens you need, how far you need to zoom in, whatever. Um, just like the sound guy is like, okay, yeah, I know you need those sound effects. I'm, this is how we're going to get it. And this is how this, and then the lighting person, the same thing. So you were the director. Like that's, you were just doing the director's okay. job. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought I was just being lazy. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Directors, they don't, they, they don't lift a finger usually. I mean, they're just using their voice. Um, and that's why that job's so hard though. Cause most director or most people cannot communicate clearly, you know, that's a hard skill. That's mm -hmm. why, why do you think relationships are so hard? Why yes. do you think, you know, getting to know people is really difficult sometimes. Why do you think there's so much fear involved with that? It's because we don't know what the fuck we're doing most of the time. And most people are afraid to be honest. Yeah. Honesty, being scary. vulnerable around others. Cause you know, it can be used against you. Oh yeah. But that's an unhealthy mindset to have. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it is. Um, uh, yeah. Well, that's like being so afraid of something that you never do it, you know, yeah. you never try. And, uh, I don't wish that on anybody. I think discomfort is one of the most important aspects of, uh, our lives and you have to like really run and sprint towards discomfort when it's needed, mm -hmm. you know, obviously don't jump off a cliff. There know? are limits. And I think it is very often, uh, grandized by certain, you know, internet personalities who say things like, you know, you just, you just do it. It's Rise like, whatever, just do it. Yeah. That's the toxic like, I, side of it. I get that that can, you know, that can benefit some people, but you also have to realize again, it goes back to what I said. You don't know what everyone's been through. Yeah. There's well, different ways and different approaches to everything. Human being we we have a lot of similarities and we can recognize a lot of patterns that are like, you know, we can kind of recognize this person is this type of personality, whatever, you know, we can break it down into 16 categories or 20 or 30 or a hundred, but there still are a finite level of categories, right? Um, even if it's small or big, so you're just understanding that like not everybody's going to operate in the same way mm -hmm. and there's no one avenue to take. I mean, that's what innovation is. I think rising grinders are being or counter in innovation because yeah. they're saying this is the only way to be successful. And I know a hell of a lot of engineers and people who are fucking lazy as shit and figured out a more interesting way to make a living or mm -hmm. a more interesting way to get noticed in the world or whatever. And then there are people who can work on four hours of sleep you know, every night, but there are amazing people who've changed the world who need a good 12 hour nap, you know, it's I mean, even Jeff Bezos, you know, even though I don't necessarily care for the man, I will give him credit where he, he's always advocating for sleep because there's this big, big thing. Oh, you want to be a successful entrepreneur, business owner. You just, you, you know, you sleep, Steve Harvey, time. poor you people, yeah, 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 rich you people don't work sleep. and work and work. And no, that's you, how can you function? It, I, I always go, there's, there's two sayings that I, or, or quotes, and they're not even from anyone in particular. They're just, to me, they're very important. Is nothing in life is simple, 
and, and nothing like as far as it being black and white, nothing in life is ever as simple as yes or no. Um, as well as uh, the pursuit of perfection is more important than the perfection itself. Oh yeah, that's a quote I live by because, it, and it, you know, it can be told in different ways. You know, the, the journey is more important than yeah. you know destination. the destination, all that. But I think there's truth to that. I think that if you continuously push and 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 find ways to improve. And even if you take stumbles, if you keep improving, that's the whole point. That's the whole point of life because there, you don't win life. You don't get to the end and someone hands you a trophy. Hey, you did it. You did everything right. No, nothing happens like that. Really, the only trophy you get is going to be intrinsic anyway. So it's like you might as well do something that you're proud of. That's mm -hmm. something that makes you feel fulfilled, you know. And fulfillment does not have to mean success either, like no. in a traditional sense at all. And I, I kind of harp against this. And I know most of you are listening probably nodding. Yep. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But there are so many people who have a clouded sense of what success is and what it may mean. And they unfortunately waste their waste away um, looking for recognition from someone who's never going to give it or looking for an accolade that they may or may not get. And even if they do, is it really the thing that they always thought it was? You know, that's why I'm such a hardcore advocate for inner peace, you know, understanding like, Oh yes. I'm all even about if you that. have nothing. There are ways to find, you know, satisfaction and fulfillment, you know, and it's tough. It's not easy, you know, cause I'm stressed about money too. Like, mm -hmm. don't, don't think that I'm not like, I'm just like, whatever, ain't nothing but a peanut. But like, it's, it's more about how you attack the day to day rather than let it like attack you. Mm -hmm. Well, there's always a good thing to uh, keep in mind is that, you know, we're all humans. We all make mistakes and it's fine to make those mistakes. You Grace, know, for me, dude. For me, that was one of the hardest lessons I had to learn is to, to be able to fail. Yep. Cause the, I, I always built up this pressure and this pressure just kept building, 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 building until, you know, boom, you've got anxiety issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 That's so true. Cause especially if you're someone who's afraid of failure, who avoids like even being in a position where you can fail, mm -hmm. that means that first big failure is a high cliff you're falling off yes. of rather than what it really is, which is probably just like a molehill, you know? Oh yeah. I, I remember, uh, I had a, in, in tech school, you know, not to detract too much, but in tech school, I failed a, a test at one point and it, it wasn't really related to the coursework. There was other stuff going on, but regardless it happened, I had a panic attack in the bathroom right afterwards. It, and then everyone came flooding in the room and I was freaking out and everyone was like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, no, I believe, you know, that that's, it's hard. It's hard to fail, but you learn from it. You learn a lot about yourself. Yep. Well, yeah. Failure is way more important than success because of the lessons learned. And mm -hmm. I think specifically Western society is kind of like, has a hard time with that for some reason. Yes. Yes. I think it's just more of like, our culture is so um, success driven. It's so progress driven. And uh, we, we tend to not take a moment and breathe. And anyway, when you stumble, it forces you to take a moment and breathe. Mm -hmm. And whether you like it or not, <laughs> and you can choose to, in my opinion, you choose to respond to that healthily or not, right? Because failure isn't good unless you learn from it. Practicing um, it, mindfulness, mm -hmm. understanding. Oh, yeah you know, taking time to just sit and reflect on what you did and how you got there, whether good or bad, it's good to think about those things. Yeah. 
you know, reflecting on yourself and again, choices, decisions, it, it has an invaluable benefit that continuous, again, that, that pursuit of perfection, that pursuit of, uh, betterment that is so important. And so many people get lost in the, you know, in the weeds trying to find it. And it's, it's, it really is simple. It really is. It's just, it's hard to find it. Well, I, I, um, I use the analogy of like, as you're growing as a person, um, when you're figuring out who it is that you want to be, and this may take all your life, it may take a little bit of their life, and then you, you know, move from there. Um, we're all different in that regard. But I think that the finding yourself phase of life is like bricklaying a foundation. Mm-hmm. And if you don't take care to lay each brick with attention to detail and, you know, allowing that each brick to have the right amount of attention, then when you build the house on top of it, um, it's going to come crumbling down. You owe it to yourself to have the grace to take your time, learn from that. If you mess up a brick, take the pieces away. Don't just try to make that broken brick work. You know, wait until you have the hard, solid brick, you know, ready to go, and then you know, place the next one. Um, that took a long time for me to learn because I was always trying to sprint. You know, I was trying yeah, to like lay the here. bricks as fast as possible because I just I needed to be this thing. I had this idea in my head that I needed to be a thing. You know, yeah, it doesn't the matter idea what the of thing yourself. Is. Yeah. yeah, the. <laughs> It's so funny is, uh, you know, I've, I've been interested in creative writing for a couple of years now. And, you know, th- to be honest, thanks to you, um, I, I never really had a lot of uh, inspiration in that area. But you always encouraged me to do stuff that was creative. And I, I've always enjoyed being creative. I've always had a very, very vivid imagination. Um, and I, I think that taking that first step, you know, that was not easy because I was so... Uh, you know, I, I wanted, I wanted to be it before I was. Right. And it's so, even to, the, to this day, I still struggle with this. I'm like, I have to slow myself down and consciously think, you know, look, I've got to take care of these things before I can get to that. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I agree with you. It is so hard. It is so hard to sit down and be like, this is going to take years. You know why it's hard though? <laughs> Actually, Ira Glass, um, he does a, a show on NPR called This American Life. Amazing storyteller. But he, do, he has this little talk on storytelling. And I think this applies to everything. Because he said like, those of us who really struggle with doing the thing, it's because we have great taste. So we know it's bad. And so we know that the early stages suck. <laughs> you should see how many drafts I made yeah, for papers. We know it sucks. <laughs> and he said what's, what separates a successful storyteller from somebody who doesn't get their you know feet off the ground is they quit. The people who quit usually think either it's already good because mm-hmm. they have bad taste or they give up because they're too afraid of pushing past that bad stage. Because he's like, all storytellers are really bad at first. He's like, your work isn't really that good, but what separates you is you know it's not good and you're going to keep going until it is. Mm -hmm. And it's that taste that separates you, not ability. Because natural ability does not... I mean, people have a disposition. Yeah, it it takes work. But it always takes work, no matter how good you are at it, no matter how naturally talented, you will still have to be bad first. Stephen King, to this day... I think he says he types what three five thousand words a day, even if it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, they say like still write. Yeah, yeah. and it goes. I know this kind of goes back to our point of just do it, but this is on a this is a little different in my opinion. Sure. This, this falls on the line of you, you've already decided that these are some things you want to do, and in order to be good at them, you have to practice. 
I think that gets lost as well. Like you said, the people that you, you always see people, oh, they've just got that natural talent. They're just naturally gifted. But in reality, if you really talk to them, I guarantee you they're spending almost all their free time and maybe even some of their professional time to pad that out and work on it and improve. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's how you build something from the ground up. Yep. That's, that's a hundred percent true. There's no pursuit or lifestyle that somebody got for no reason. You know, we all have our various levels of privilege and natural ability and access, but it still takes every good thing takes some amount of effort that mm-hmm. is uncomfortable. And I think everybody owes to give themselves a little credit for the things that they've accomplished, even if you feel like you were lifted up by others. Give them credit too, for sure. Recognize those who've helped you, but recognize yourself because that's what they tell you. Mm-hmm. Almost every time in my life where someone has helped me accomplish something and I'm just like attribute it all to them, the first thing out of their mouths is like, shut the fuck up. You did this too. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it is you. I, I just saw where you needed some help. You know what I mean? Like, and uh, we tend to... Uh, beat ourselves up a little bit as creatives, I think. Oh, it's, it's definitely hard. You know, it goes so far as, as bad as, uh, I, I will never like buy myself stuff. Yeah, dude. Thing, even things I too. like know I will love and enjoy. Uh, my wife, Katie has to be like, get it for yourself. You never, you know, it's like, it's fine. And the same thing goes anytime I have, you know, if I'm working on something like a project, <clears throat> one of my personal projects, I'll have, you know, I'll pass it along. And I'll just like, I won't look at it. I won't even touch it because I'm so afraid of that, that yeah. whole process. And it's just frustrating. But, um, you know, then I've learned to say thank you, I guess is what I'm getting at. I've learned to accept that, hey, I, I can be good at stuff and not come across as arrogant. I yep. can admit that I'm proud of something and not have that deep voice in my head saying that, you know, oh, you don't deserve that. And that's fine. It's a process. It takes time to accept that, but it happens. You just have to work at it and surround yourself with people who are willing to encourage it. Well, true confidence is recognizing your own work, but equally recognizing the work of the rest of the universe. I think narcissism is thinking that the universe didn't help you. Mm -hmm. And, And narcissism is also thinking that it wasn't hard for you too. You know, a lot of narcissists will think that they have some sort of natural talent, you know, that they're, somewhat better than others who try to do the whatever it is that they're doing that they got the thing that no one has and even if they do because sometimes they do it's actually pretty common that narcissists are really good at the things that they mm-hmm. do um because they push past that feeling because they don't feel bad about themselves you know usually <laughs> um but yeah it's, it always comes to do though yeah oh yeah i i believe in karma law of attraction whatever you want to call it um i think that the universe is very interesting i think we're all connected and I think that the energy that you put out into the world can benefit you. It doesn't mean it will, but the same can be said about negative energy too. Well, just as you can admit positive energy, it has to be received yeah. positively. Yeah, that's so true. you have to be willing to receive the idea or you know whatever it is, uh, right. influence or uh, you know you can tell someone that you love them, but if they don't receive that love personally, then it's just going to disappear into the air. Yeah. God, that's so true. That's why it's important to not give yourself to people unless they earn it. Exactly. Well, man, let's go smoke some weed. Yes, let's do it. Let's <laughs> Thanks make sure we're hanging tea. out with me, How buddy? about that? Oh no. yeah. We're going to, we're going to get, we're going to get a little schmoozy. 
It's my last night. We gotta we gotta celebrate. Yeah, I appreciate you doing this with me, buddy. Oh, I loved it. This is a lot more fun than I thought it was. Gonna yeah, be. not that it's an insult. I thought I was gonna not be interesting. No, so. man, you're so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very thankful to have a relationship with my family uh, that is so strong, and I think it's very clear. I really appreciate y'all listening to this. It's um, it was definitely one of those episodes where I was like, ah, this is fucking cool. Like, I don't know. I was like, I can't believe I'm I'm making something, and it's the thing I'm making for y'all is me hanging out with my cool as fuck brother. Uh, I'm so thankful for him. Thanks, Will, for being on. I love you, dude. Uh, yeah. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was fulfilling for you to listen to. We got more great episodes coming your way though, so don't let this one be the best. Just say it's the best yet. Uh, (laughs) God, that was corny. Well, until next time, as always, drink some water and tell somebody you love that you love them.